We'll look this morning at Matthew 28, verses 1 to 15. We'll also go eventually to Luke chapter 24 to have an overview of the events, the historical events. These happen in actual human history of Jesus' resurrection on the first day of the week. These are not the only appearances uh, that he presented himself to different disciples. We're just going to look at the first day today. Think about events in your life that have the potential to, well, to use the two words of your, my sermon title today, to, to change everything. My sermon title is The Resurrection of Jesus Christ Changes Everything. Think about events that have the potential to change everything about your life. We could start with our government. The government can pass laws, and that changes a lot for you and I. You could come into a lot of money. That will change a lot of things for you, potentially. You might say, money's not going to change me at all, but if you've got some debt, that will be a help to you. If you've got a new job, that's going to change things for you. If you're single and you get married, I guarantee you, that's going to change everything for you. But the thing about all of these items, whether it's government or money, a new job or marriage, these all happen in a world that is cursed by sin. And because these things happen in a world cursed by sin, they're imperfect and they ultimately will not last. Unless you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's not the case. This is really going to have uh, an infinite effect on everybody's life. Well, what about the government effects that happen in Assyria in the second uh, millennia BC? Remember those? And we're all drawing a blank, aren't we? Because we don't know what happened then. Or Acadia. Or Egypt. The taxes, the money that people came into, or marriages that happened, the new jobs, or slavery that people entered into. They're gone and forgotten, aren't they? Because they happen in a sin-cursed world with limited time-wise people. We're temporal. We're limited to this time and place. In, I'm going to use a word here, Christendom, that means the umbrella that covers everything that might call itself Christian, okay? I am including a lot under there. Under that umbrella of Christendom, you can have everything on the one hand, well, we could rightly say us, biblical Protestants. Then you could have Roman Catholics. You can also throw in there a liberal Protestant. Uh, you might all, as, as they're more and more portraying themselves, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, they are dropping much of that and just trying to show we're really Christians. The same with Jehovah's Witnesses and, and dozens, if not hundreds, of different groups under this umbrella of Christianity because they're not under the umbrella of Buddhism or Islam. They're not in different denominations of those, which ironically is interesting. But within Christendom, there are different contrasting beliefs about the historical fact and the meaning 
of Jesus' resurrection. Under that umbrella of Christendom, you have people who call themselves Christians who say Jesus literally rose from the dead and a body, listen closely, the, a body different from what he was buried in. Now we might hear that and say, what's the big deal about that? There's a big problem with that. Because when Jesus appeared to Thomas later on, what was one of the ways that he showed to Thomas that it was really him? He said, look at my hands that were pierced. Put your hand in my side where the spear was. It was the same body that he was crucified in. Others within that under that umbrella of Christendom will say, well, we're Christians, but we really don't believe that Jesus literally in the same body rose from the dead. Rather, it's just the idea of the continuance of Jesus' teachings. They're continuing to live. Many Christians, professing Christians, I should say, say that. Since early times, one of the reasons that different beliefs have come about is because of the gospel messages, uh, what the gospels say about Christ's resurrection. Every gospel at the end, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, talks about Jesus' resurrection. Every gospel talks about Jesus' crucifixion. Not every gospel talks about Jesus' birth. Only two do, Matthew and Luke. But every one of the gospels talks about his death and his resurrection. When you look at these different accounts, in Matthew 28 and Luke 24 and Mark 16 and John 20, you look at these different accounts and you'll start to see there's some differences here. Matthew says this. Luke doesn't say some of those things, but he includes other things that Matthew doesn't. And then there's John, who has a seemingly entirely different approach. And so people under that umbrella of Christianity, they'll say, see even the gospel writers couldn't agree. See, there's contradictions amongst them. I would have you think about a, a court of law. If you've ever gone and been called to be a witness at a court of law, I never have. I get that jury summons once or twice a year and you see that in your mailbox and you look at the date and how am I going to make this fit into my life? Um, how am I going to, you know, who's, well, I guess John's going to have to speak for me that Sunday. And he looks at me, no. When you go to a court of law, there's somebody that's being accused of something or some issue that's having to be dealt with. And how they get to the facts, whether the accused is innocent or guilty, or how we should rightly understand a particular issue is by calling in witnesses. These witnesses are sworn in. You will tell the truth. You are under oath. And you do not have a choice. You must do that. Does every witness give the full, complete picture of everything that happened? Under oath, they tell what they know, what they're aware of, what they've seen, what they've experienced. And the point of calling in many witnesses is so that the court 
can see what? The, as full a picture as is possible. And with all these different witnesses under oath, they, the court can say, these are the facts. We're putting them together and we're getting the full picture. Do you see how Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John provide that for us? They're not under oath per se, but they were directed by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit protected them from error. The Holy Spirit guided them and the, every word that they wrote, so it was exactly what God wanted written, it gives us a full picture. What I want to do is walking through Matthew 28 and Luke 24 is to help you and I see on the first day of Jesus' resurrection the historical facts of his resurrection. Let's look, first of all, Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 to 8, and how the women, disciples, go to Jesus' tomb. Verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. So this is Sunday, the first day of the week that they are going uh, to the tomb. Mark chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. You don't need to turn there, but just give you a little bit more detail. Mark 16, verses 1 and 2 tell us they went to anoint Jesus' body. Uh, this is something that Jews did to show their love for the deceased. They, did, they weren't like Egyptians. They didn't embalm bodies. And so this is what Jews did to show their love for the one who had died. And Mark 16, verse 3 also tells us, so they're on their way there and they're thinking to themselves, how are we going to get in? This giant stone has been rolled in front of uh, the tomb. We can't open that. How are we going to do that? So they arrived, verses 2 and 4, 2 to 4. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow, and our guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. So the angel moves the stone from the door, and as we read here, the uh, soldiers are nearly scared, uh, scared to death. I want you to note something. The stone was not rolled away so that Jesus could leave the tomb. That's not why the stone was rolled away. It was rolled away so that the witnesses could go in and they're going to see what? An empty tomb. And you might say, well, of course the stone had to be rolled away for Jesus to get out. How else is he going to, to move? Well, I'll give you a couple of passages. We'll look at Luke Chapter 24, verse 31 and 36. Luke 24, 31 to 36. And John, chapter 20, verse 19 and 26. John, chapter 20, and verse 19 and 26. Jesus did not need uh, in his resurrected body to have doors open. He could just appear and leave at his decision to do so. And the same happened with his resurrection from the dead. The beginning of the first day of the week, he rose from the dead. And no stone or earthly thing could keep him from that. Verses 5 to 7. The angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come, see the place 
where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So the women went to the tomb expecting to find Jesus' body and they didn't see it at all. Luke chapter 24, verse 3. You see Jesus who's crucified. He is not here, but he's risen. And what did the angel say? He's risen as he said. You could write down Luke chapter 24, verses 6 and 7. Luke 24, verses 6 and 7. Where the angel said, Remember how he spoke to you when he was in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of the sinful men, be crucified, and the third day rise again. I'll make this point later on. But every time Jesus talked about while on earth, I'm going to be crucified, he never put a period after that. Every time he also said, I will be crucified, I will be killed, and I will rise again. Every time. And so the angel said to the ladies here, he is risen just as he said. See where he's laid, they said in verse 5. If the body was moved, somebody stole it. What would happen to those cloths that his body was wrapped in? They'd be taken away or they'd be in a, on a mess on the floor. But that's not what happened. They found uh, those, those pieces of cloths that Jesus' body was wrapped in. He rose from the dead and they just settled. They were right there, not in a messed up clump. Who is saying this to these ladies? Angels. There are two kinds or classifications of angels. There's good angels and there's fallen angels. We call those fallen angels. The Bible calls those fallen angels demons, doesn't it? These are good angels. Elect angels, Scripture calls them. Do they lie? No. What did these angels who do not lie, what did they say? He is not here, for he is risen. This is a genuine, real, historical event that happened. And so, verse 8, the women went up quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. In the next part, we read how Jesus appears uh, to the women as they're on their way, verses 9 and 10. As they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Now, there have been many occasions in Scripture where an awesome angel appears before uh, different biblical characters. And those biblical characters, John and in, 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 uh, Zechariah, they, they fall down. And what do the angels do? What do they say? Don't do that. I'm like you. I'm just a, a servant of the Lord. Did Jesus do that here? These women fall down and worship him. Do they do that? Does, does Jesus say, don't do that? He doesn't. Because he is God in the flesh. He is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. He must be worshipped and he receives this worship. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me. You could write down 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6. We read this earlier today. 
Jesus would appear to several disciples. We'll read another occasion of that in a little bit from Luke 24. But he said, go to, the, go to Galilee and I will appear to my disciples. And 1 Corinthians 15, 6 tells us how many saw Jesus there. Over 500 witnesses of the resurrected Christ. The women told the disciples, uh, they, the disciples did not believe them. They wouldn't believe it. And so Peter and John uh, ran to the tomb and they saw it empty. We come now to verses uh, 13 and following. I, I'm, I'm sorry, let's go to Luke chapter 24. Hold your place here in Matthew 28. Let's go to Luke chapter 24. This is the same day, Luke chapter 24. We read in verse uh, 11, when the disciples heard the lady's testimony, their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose, ran to the tomb, and stooping down, saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what happened. Now we come to verse 13, where Jesus appeared to uh, his disciples in Bethany. Verse 13. Behold, two of them were traveling that same day, these are unnamed disciples, to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas, and so I just said earlier we don't know their names, and so guess what? I was wrong. <laughs> I forgot about that. Verse 18. The one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he, Jesus, said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, Today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And then he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So we read here of these two disciples leaving Jerusalem on their way to Emmaus. And unknowingly, Jesus is walking right with them. Verse 28. Then they drew near to the village where they were going. And he indicated that he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, 
any vanished from their sight. This is one of those passages I told you that show us that Jesus in his glorified state has the ability to go as he pleases. But they recognized him. Verse 32. They said to one another, did not our heart burn within us? Well, they talked to us on the road while he opened the scriptures to us. So they rose up that very hour, returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. And they told them about the things that had happened on the road. Now he's known to them in a breaking of bread. And right then, verse 36, Jesus appears to them. As they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. And they were terrified and frightened and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and some honeycomb. He took it and ate in their presence. You could read on uh, maybe this afternoon, verses 44 to 49. And you read how that same day, the first day, the day he rose from the dead, he taught the disciples. I had to suffer. I had to die. This is what the Old Testament scriptures said about me, the Messiah. And so, verse 47, you need to take this good news and proclaim it throughout the world. You're, as witness, you're my witnesses. But wait, stay here in Jerusalem until I enable you through the Spirit. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 28. And one last thing that we need to read about this historical event of Jesus' resurrection. And that's Matthew 28, verses 11 to 15. So remember, uh, the ladies were there. The angel appeared to them, told them he is not risen, or he's not here for he's risen, as he said. They go to tell the disciples, Jesus meets them on the way. So what did the Jewish leaders, what do those Roman guards say about all this? We read about that here. What do they say about this real, genuine, historical event? Verses 11 to 15. While they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. Well, you might say, why are Roman soldiers reporting to these religious leaders? Well, you remember, the, the religious leaders, they went to Pilate after Jesus was crucified and buried. And they said, we're kind of concerned because the deceiver said he's going to rise again. And so Pilate entrusted these soldiers to the chief priests. They were as a, they, they, they kind of served as under the, the Sanhedrin, this religious body here. And so that's why they go to the chief priests. Verse 12. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers a bribe, saying, Tell them, his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. 
And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Now, this is an amazing thing. If you think about it, that these religious leaders asked these soldiers to do. This is what we want you to do. Say you were asleep, but we know that this is what happened. Say you were asleep, but you didn't really hear any commotion. Say you were asleep, and we neglected our duty. That's what these religious leaders are bribing these soldiers to do. What about the whole uh, promising to protect the soldiers from Pilate in verse 14? Well, they would either bribe Pilate, or remember, these soldiers were kind of serving the chief priests. Maybe the religious leaders would have said, we're happy with their work. This lie, verse 15 tells us, continued to be accepted. He did not rise from the dead. And it is a lie that continues to take different forms today. This is a fact. Jesus rose from the dead in the same body that he was buried. Now, because of the facts of Jesus' resurrection, what does that mean? How must that? This is a fact. If we have government laws, that affects you. If you come into a lot of money, that affects you. You get a new job or you lose your job. You gain a spouse or you lose your spouse. That affects you. This is a fact. How must this affect and direct your life? On the back of the sheet, I have four main points with a number of scriptures. And this is something that we need to see. The Gospels tell us the facts. The rest of the New Testament tells us what that, those facts mean and the significance of them. And don't be put off by this list. One of the challenges that I thought about last night in our meeting place right here is guess what we are probably able to smell right now? You know, one of the good things about the community center at Windsor, the meeting place was far and away from the lunchroom. Almost makes you want to go back there, doesn't it? All in favor? Okay, well, you're just going to have to, man, my stomach's growling, deal with it right now. But I'm going to walk through these fairly quickly, quickly with you. How should this affect and direct your life? The historical fact of Jesus' resurrection. First, it must affect what you believe about Jesus. In John 2, 19, Jesus told a truth. He didn't lie. He said, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. He spoke the truth because he rose from the dead. And we must recognize that. Number two, in Acts 2 and Acts 13, Jesus had to rise from the dead because his body would not experience corruption. Anything else dies, including your body and my body. What will happen, this is kind of gross to think about, but what will happen to our bodies? Our bodies are going to decay. What will happen to your bones after decades and centuries? It will go to powder. It was impossible for Jesus' body because he had no sin. He had no sin. 
And that's what causes our bodies to perish, to corrupt, and to die. He had none. And so because he could not be held by sin, he had to rise from the dead. Number three, you must believe about Jesus the fact that he is the Son of God. In Romans 1.4 it says, this shows and proves him to be the Son of God. This doesn't mean he became the Son. There have been some that have taught that. It shows he is the Son of God. Now what does that mean to be the Son of God? How many gods, true gods are there? Just one. And this one true God eternally, forever, exists in three persons, doesn't he? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit forever in this, as it were, inter-Trinitarian society and fellowship. One God, three persons. You might say, that doesn't make sense to me. Welcome to humanity. Our little six inches of gray matter will never fully comprehend that. He is God, and we aren't. God the Son has existed forever, and at a point in human history, he took on human flesh. He became incarnate. That's what that means, to take on human flesh. And he never ceased being the eternal Son. He added to himself a human nature so that he is from that point on, Jesus, the same What's Hebrews 13 say? The same yesterday, today, and forever. And the resurrection proves that he is God because death could not hold him. And he defeated death. The last one, Romans 8 and Hebrews 7, talks about how Jesus ascended into heaven and he is our intercessor, Christian. He has ascended into heaven. He prays for you right now. These are facts that you must believe, recognize, and welcome. It must, number two, affect and direct what you must believe for eternal life. In Acts chapter 2, verse 24, Peter says, Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Jesus, by his resurrection, defeated sin and death. In our years as a church, have we had loved ones die? We have. And those have been hard times, haven't they? Family members, friends, and where are their bodies right now? And the same place where they were buried. What about Jesus' body? Sin could not hold him. Death could not hold him. He defeated sin and death. And because of that, Christian, when you're relying on Christ, you have victory over sin and death. The second passage is in Acts 10, Acts 13, and Romans 4. True faith in Jesus believing he did rise from the dead, that results in your sins being forgiven and you gaining a right standing before God. Not your works, not your going to church, not your getting baptized and sprinkled, not taking communion. None of that forgives your sin. None of that makes you right with God. Only Christ can do that. 
The third passage, Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. If you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, what? That Jesus rose from the dead, you will be saved. You must rely, receive, depend on this truth. Christ rose from the dead. This is a real historical event in order for you to be saved. If you don't believe it, you are lost. So that when you, when you die, you will not go to heaven. You will go to hell. Eternal punishment. Today's the day of salvation. Believe this. The fourth passage, 1 Corinthians 15. There is deliverance from sin and death. And number five, 1 Corinthians 14. There is real substance and truth to the faith. We read there. If Christ is not risen, our faith is empty. But he is risen. And so there's real substance. Number three, this must affect how you live as a Christian. Our gatherings here, this is a church service. We love having visitors with us, but this is particularly a meeting for Oral Bible Church. And so, Christian, this is for you, particularly. Jesus rose from the dead. That has to affect how you live. Before we get into it, we hear a lot, and have heard a lot over the years, decades perhaps, we need to be cross-centered Christians, centered on the cross. And there's a sense where that's true, but that's only part of the story. It's only part of the story. It's only half the facts. Think about it. If it's just the cross, is that good news? That someone was crucified? If there was just a period after that, is that good news? They were crucified, died, and are still dead? That's not good news, is it? The cross is essential. It shows the cost of your sin. The resurrection is essential. That shows the victory over sin. Both are essential. The cross and the resurrection. Some passages here, Christian. For you and I. Number one, in Acts 17 and 26, we must proclaim Christ's resurrection with the gospel. Don't leave it out. They must hear it and believe it in order to be saved. Number two, Romans 6. Christian, sink your teeth into Romans 6 and note, follow the resurrection there. Your life has to be 100% focus given to God Holiness and righteousness, not at all to sin. You've died to sin, the cross. You've been raised with Christ to newness of life. Don't live for sin. Don't wade into sin. Don't rejoice in it and just kind of eat it up. Don't try to pretend it's not that big a deal. The Lord saved you, Christian, so that you would be given to righteousness and holiness. Number three, in Romans 7, verses 4 to 6, because Christ died and rose from the dead, this shows you are not under the law. You're under the law of Christ. And by God's Spirit, you're able to bear fruit for Him. Number eight, I'm sorry, number four, Romans 8. The Holy Spirit indwells you. He indwells you. Cause of Abba, Father. And the Spirit is the, the seal, the guarantee that you will rise from the dead. 
Number five, Romans 14 and 2 Corinthians 5. In Romans 14, 9, because Jesus rose from the dead, he is Lord of both the dead and the living. And 2 Corinthians 5, 15 says, we live no longer for ourselves, but for he who died for us. And is there a period there? No. He who died for us and rose again. Christian, you, because Jesus rose from the dead, you must live for him. Period. Not yourself. Number six. First Corinthians fifteen nineteen. If in this life only we have in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Is Jesus risen from the dead? He is. And so this means you have the real, true meaning of life. A lot of people today, what's the meaning of life? You have it, Christian. A risen Savior. Eternal life in Him. Number seven, 1 Corinthians 14, 15, 14. Telling the gospel is never wasted effort. Your preaching is not empty. Number eight, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Uh, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Everything you do for Christ, everything you do in the name of Christ, everything you do by the power of Christ, it is of lasting significance and worth. Humanity might forget it, but guess who doesn't? The risen Savior. Number nine, 2 Corinthians 1.9. Don't trust in yourself. Trust in the Lord who raises the dead. And this is one of my favorites. They're all precious. But this one, number 10, uh, is one I've especially uh, given thanks to the Lord for these, these last weeks. It's Colossians 2, verses 11 to 15. Satan and demons have no power over you, Christian. None. Think of that. He disarmed them. They are powerless over you, Christian. You are in Christ. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in this world. Second John, or 1 John 4. Number four, I forgot a word. You look at number four, what can count on in the future? Oh yeah, you need to add the word you, okay? What you can count on in the future. Because Jesus rose from the dead, this must affect and direct what you can count on in the future. Number one, in John 6 and 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15 and many other passages, he will raise Christians from the dead. And that would be impossible if Jesus is still dead. If Jesus is still dead, he can't help anyone because he's under the power of death. But he defeated death. And so Christian, he will raise you from the dead. Number two, Acts chapter two, verse 30. He will return to rule over Israel. But if he's still dead, that would be impossible. Number three, Acts 17, 31. Because Jesus rose from the dead, he will return to judge the world and righteousness. But if he's still dead, that's impossible. But he will. And that's what Paul said in Acts 17 to really smart people. And he told them then, you need to repent. The reason you need to repent, God's going to judge the world through Jesus Christ someday. Number four, the last one, Romans, Revelation 19, Jesus will return to earth And it says there, he will slay his enemies. 
And that would be impossible if he was still dead. Christian? Christian. Because Jesus is raised from the dead, you can and you have to live a life for him. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're at in life. This isn't calling every Christian to be a missionary and a pastor and that sort of thing. No. It doesn't matter where you're at. If you're an elementary school believer, if you're in college, if you're in the middle of your, your work life, and whatever it is that you do for work, if you're retired, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Live a holy, righteous life. Remember this also, Christian. No sin has dominating power over your life because Jesus rose from the dead and defeated sin. Now you might say, boy, that's not true. I'm having a real hard time with my sin. The problem isn't with Christ, is it? The problem is, what are you doing? How are you working through that? Are you getting help and direction? Are you praying and, and, and denying your flesh like you should? Are you plucking out your eye or cutting off your hand? Not literally. And dealing with that sin. One last thing, Christian. Because Jesus is risen. No sickness. And death should never cause overwhelming fear for you. That is a precious truth. Am I saying, next time you get sick, get all excited? When you're on your deathbed, it's going to be the best feeling moment of your life. I am not saying that at all. But what I am saying is, that is part of our bodies still affected by sin. But because Jesus rose from the dead, this is just a, a clay pot. It's a, a tent. And someday what's going to happen to this clay pot? It's going to dissolve. And this tent will be folded up. And Jesus is going to take that clay pot and he's going to make it into a uh, resurrected, a uh, glorified. And he's going to make all the bad things good. He's going to make all the wrong things right. And he'll do that because he was raised from the dead. So Christian, when you get sick, when you face death, never face those times overwhelmed with fear. Remember, your Savior is risen. This is who we must proclaim. A Christ who was crucified. A Christ who is risen. As we'll see in a few weeks, a Christ who is coming again. Let's pray.